It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy, restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy. Welcome, July 13th, 2006. Last podcast, I talked about I was going to go see Superman Returns, and indeed I did go see it. Truly enjoyed it. I even though um, I was a little nervous, Heidi had scared me, telling me that she heard the love story overwhelmed a lot of the action sequences, but that was not the case. Sure, there was some sappy stuff in there, but um, overall I thought it was great. But in keeping with the whole superhero and supernatural type theme, I've decided today's topic title for the financial chaos topic, because remember, this is the money-guy.com show, and our whole purpose here is to restore order to your financial chaos. And today's topic is debt, the Darth Vader of financial planning tools. And, and what I mean by that, and you know, don't worry, next time I am not going to do Star Trek. At least I don't think, I don't truly sit down and think about these things. But what I mean by that is, if you think about Darth Vader, he has the Jedi Force. And the Jedi Force can be used for good, like you think of Luke Skywalker, and then, or for bad, if you go the way of Darth Vader and go to the dark side. And that's what I think debt is as well. It can be a great enabler to build wealth or it can truly take you down a dark street. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But we need to talk, care, take care of a few things and talk about some of the current events of things that are going on at money-guy.com. Now, don't worry. Remember, we mixed up the way we do business here a few weeks ago. We jumped right into the financial chaos topic, but I do want to tell you a few quick things. First, great news. If Many of y'all have been following this show since the beginning. We started the first episode was on January 30th, 2006, so we have not been around too long. But the time we have been here, we've had rapid, rapid growth. And I told you when I started this, my biggest goal was to reach 1,000 subscribers. And guess what happened? Just this week, we reached a 1,000 subscribers. That's right, everybody. So I want to give a big thank you uh, for helping us out and reaching that goal. Truly, thank you for your help on all that. That was the can, you know, crowd noise that I went and downloaded. I wasn't willing to pay the $2.99 to some of the pay sites, but I was able to find the three-second applause um, it's some free, free site. So I hope you enjoyed that. But truthfully, I do want to thank you guys. A big thank you goes out to you guys for making our growth happen. This has been a grassroots type growth where we've done everything through word of mouth and through iTunes and Yahoo and some of the other podcast sites out there that have featured us and, and mentioned us in their newspapers as well as magazines. So thank you and please continue to tell your friends, family, and everybody else out there who will listen to dial in to the money-guy.com podcast because we're going to continue to be around, we're going to continue to grow, and we've got great things in the future um, that we're hoping to unveil, but I don't want to get into that right now. Today's topic, we're going to discuss how debt can lead to your financial ruin or become an enabler of enormous wealth. And within that, we're going to talk about faking success, because I think there's so many of us out there that are truly faking their success, trying to look good in front of our family and friends, and really hurting ourselves and our financial future. We're also going to talk about the difference between good and bad debt, the power of working with a banker, and then, you know, if I'm going to load all this on you, don't you think I ought to tell you how much debt is okay to have as well? So I'm going to give you some tools to figure out how much you can handle. 
Um, after we wrap up our debt discussion, I do want to talk about there's an investment news article um, from, I believe it's the June 26th. Where's my notes on that? Yes, indeed, it's the June 26th um, Investment News Magazine. I want to go over one of the articles in there on Social Security, and I'll give you my personal thoughts on it. Now, I, you know, I don't try to go into politics or do anything um, on the podcast because I think that this is a, money's a topic that hits everybody. I don't care whether you vote one way or the other, but I do want to give you my two cents on the way I think Social Security is going right now. And what you can do as a listener, if you are troubled by some of the things in the future of Social Security and what you can do to take action. And then we're going to close out the show with an email from one of our subscribers, Shannon Foster. i got to tell you, Shannon sent me an email following up on our credit podcast, and it was amazing the tips she had. I kept looking to see if she might have a few letters after her name or maybe um, – be from the email address of one of my competitors because she did a great job of giving us some tips. She said they came from both um, her own life experiences as well as uh, research she's done on credit. So we're going to make sure we throw those those tips out there because if anything that can help our listeners, we're going to put it out there. And then I want to give you a heads up on the next show that we're doing. The next show, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I have quite a few emails that I've received over the last probably month and a half and I've been doing a dreadful job. I know, even though I've answered a few emails on these shows, I haven't done a great job of responding to everybody. And, and that troubles me a little bit because you guys are a big part of our growth and our success, and, and it means a lot to me. So I do try to respond to those emails, but there are quite a few of you out there that I have not gotten to. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a show that's going to focus specifically on subscriber emails, and then we're going to put some tidbits in and some um, financial articles that, just to keep you up to date on what's going on out there in the financial world. So that's going to be the focus of next podcast, which will be in approximately two weeks. If you want to contact me to send me an email, you can reach me at jbp, that's my initials, jbp at preston-cleveland, c-l-e-v-e-l-a-n-d.com. That's jbp at preston Cleveland.com. Because remember, this is more of a, a hobby, not my day job. My day job is I'm a, actually a wealth manager for a fee-only financial planning firm down here on the south side of Atlanta called Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. If you want to check out that website to see our firm, you can go to Preston-Cleveland.com and read the bios of both me as well as my partner, Bill Cleveland, who is the brains of the operation up in Augusta, Georgia. I'm just the loud one, as I always joke. But... um. Those are kind of an outline of what's going to happen on the show. Let's jump right into the financial chaos topic. I've already told you the title of today's show is Debt, the Darth Vader of Financial Planning Tools. I was tempted to call it the Rodney Dangerfield because I feel like debt gets no respect, um, primarily because there's so many financial professionals and commentators as well as radio hosts that their primary focus is to get you out of debt. And, they, and there's a reason for that. And I can understand why they do that. There's even, and, and I'm not a big fan. I don't want you to think that, okay, Brian's going to do a show telling us the good sides of debt. I am a big fan of paying down debt as soon as possible. Matter of fact, one of the first things I do when I have a client that's entering retirement is I try to pay down all their debts, including their mortgages, because I think it's just, there's some psychological benefits as well as the financial benefits of having no debt out there. But there are quite a few commentaries in the financial industry that, um, you know, have made their specialty 
the paying down of all debts. And I just want to give you the other side of it as well to think about debt and the good parts, parts of debt. Debt is not always bad, and that's why I said that you know, debt is kind of the Rodney Dangerfield out there because it gets no respect whatsoever. But I will tell you the reason that I think a lot of these professionals focus on debt is because the majority of the consumers out there are not being responsible. It's almost like you can't trust people with the power that debt has because people have taken it to the extreme and actually gotten themselves in trouble and led to their ruin, their financial ruin, by not using it wisely. And what I mean by that, a big portion of our problem is that many people, in an expensive way, are faking success. When I say faking success, what I mean is they're going out there and purchasing and using debt to extend their lifestyle or their income to impress their friends and family. And let's give you some examples, because I know every one of you probably is going to know somebody or either look in the mirror and know that I'm talking exactly about this type of situation. Examples of faking success include buying that expensive car that there's no possible way in the world you could afford without that debt. You know, that's where you go in there, you either do one of those expensive leases or you... um Go put hardly anything down and get all that negative equity. Go buy that Hummer, um, some of those BMWs. You know, it, I don't have to even give you brand names of cars. You just know people who are going out there and buying cars they truly can't afford and pay for. Also, it's the clothes shopping and the shoes shopping in excess. You know, going out there and buying all the designer stuff to look cool among your friends. That stuff's not a good way to spend your money as well. There's also the designer handbags for the ladies. My wife's guilty of that, by the way. And expensive watches for the men and the ladies. And then, of course, the exotic vacations. And then spoiling our friends and family at Christmas and holidays with lavish gifts. You know, you want to look good to your friends and family, so by God, when we get to the holidays, let's buy them a lot of gifts, and we'll just pay for it three, four, five, six years later on our credit card. That seems to be our mantra around these parts. Um, now, I, say, I gave you that whole list, and I want you to know there's nothing wrong with any one of these items if you can truly pay for it. I want you to see and feel the fruits of success if you actually have reached that point where you've deferred gratification to the point that you have the money in the bank and you have the assets to support buying that nice car. I mean, we all strive to have nice things to a degree. We also need to have clothes on our body to keep us covered. So, I mean, and you're going to need handbags. If, if you're a you know a lady, so I can understand that, but I don't want you to think that just because I said they're bad. But I think where we're doing things wrong is that we're faking that success and buying things we truly can't afford. We're not buying the necessities. We're going above and beyond and buying luxuries. Uh, you need proof of our misuse as Americans, as others in the world, of, of using debt wrong. Let me give you some um, statistics that I found from the March 2005 Reader's Digest by Max Alexander. Max wrote in his article in Reader's Digest, he said, Americans bought over $2 trillion worth of stuff on credit last year. And then he also has current outstanding debt on credit cards. That's the part, remember, that's the part that you don't pay off every month. You're just carrying and rolling that over. Totaled nearly $700 billion. That's with a B, billion with a B, up from just $50 billion in 1980. By the mid-1990s, credit card debt held by Americans living below the poverty line more than doubled. And this is a big one. How do you pay attention? Also, all my young subscribers. The average college student owes almost $2,800 
on plastic, and that does not include their student loans. Senior citizens, once noted for their frugality, are sinking deeper into debt. Their average credit card balance increased 89% between 1992 and 2001. As I've stated in previous podcasts, I know you've heard me say this so many times, you're probably sick of it and can recite it backwards and forwards, but um, the average U.S. consumer now has debt of over $8,000, and that doesn't include their mortgages. So I've told you the bad side of debt, so let's discuss the good side of debt. How do you build wealth using debt? Good debt is investment debt that creates value. And when I say creating value, I'm talking about buying an appreciating asset, like um, your home value, buying a, a house and the home value going up and you're making money off of that, that debt because you bought it for by putting down a down payment, yet the total asset's appreciated. So that's a good to- part of debt. Also, there's the good part of income that can come from debt. If you go buy a piece of rental property and it goes up in value or generates rental income from somebody paying rent, that's also a good thing because it's a created income. So that's good debt. And I want you to notice the big difference between that type of debt versus what we just discussed. Everything we just talked about, whether it's appreciating assets or income coming from whatever you've purchased with that debt, versus faking success where everything there depreciated. I mean, let's face it, you go buy a thing of clothes, as soon as you walk out of the room, if you've lost the receipts, you've lost about 50% of the value, if not more. Um, typically, when I know when I've done tax planning and so forth, when you do figure out thrift value after you're done with your clothes, it's usually 20% on the dollar. So you're talking 20 cents on the dollar for um, is what your clothes are worth after you've worn them for a year or two. And that's just... That's insane to go spend a lot of money. It's the same thing with your cars. You see all these people who go buy these vehicles and they immediately depreciate right after they drive them off the the car dealership's lot. And it's just a bad cycle out there. So you need to think about that. Bad debt is everything we discussed earlier under faking success and how it loses value as soon as you buy it. It's not appreciating security or asset and it generates no income. Examples of good debt. It's mortgages on your house or a mortgage, school loans, real estate loans, and then business loans. And then let me give you some examples. I want to give you some personal stories of my experience of working with wealthy people as well as what's happened in my own life. I've always, I bought my first house when I was 24 years of age. And um, it was kind of a big jump for my wife and I when we first bought it. But I will tell you that it has paid off tenfold because what what has happened is is that and and I don't want want this to come out the wrong way but we always have felt like a lot of our friends have wondered how we can afford some of the things we have and I think they give me more credit on my income than I'm actually due because I'm in the fortunate situation because I do do financial consulting as well as you know some tax planning and so forth I know what a lot of my friends make and a lot of them would be surprised to find out they actually make more money than me because I hang out with a bunch of attorneys and other people um, that are in pretty good paying jobs. And they would be really shocked to find out that they actually make more money, but you would never be able to tell it by looking at the net worth statement because we've had the advantage of we got we got started early on buying good assets. And I remember when we bought our first house when we were 24, 
I look back on how we lived at that point, and I think it's insane, but it worked out, and we made money off that first house. And then about two and a half years ago, we bought our second house, which is probably the house we're going to live in for quite a long time because I'm just completely tickled with it. And it has appreciated drastically, too, because we were able to take the appreciation from that first house, put it right in as a down payment on the second house, and get a much larger house. And now that the neighborhood we're in has continued to appreciate. And, you know, and a lot of our friends who would like to now move in the same neighborhood, and I'll, I'll be honest, I couldn't even live in my neighborhood anymore because asset, because cost of construction has gone up. Houses have appreciated so much that, um, you know, people can't afford to live in, in, in certain parts now because it has gone up in value. And there is definitely a reward for using that debt and going out there and buying good products like houses as well as rental property, good type of assets that are going to appreciate and using debt to enable you to get in them a little bit sooner. Because you think about it, let's just take the example, and I'm going to push this tenfold later, but if you were just trying to buy a $200,000 house, most of us couldn't come out and write a check and stroke a check for $200,000 unless you've been working for quite a number of years and probably were in your 40s. But yet... Through modern debt structuring, you are able to go out and buy a good asset like a personal and primary residence through debt. So it's a good thing. And, and that's where it enables you. It's the same thing if you were trying to buy a $5 million building because, you know, you had built up a ton of assets and you now felt like it was a great thing to go buy a big commercial building to rent out for office space. You, how long would it take you to acquire $5 million in assets? And it would take a lifetime almost but yet through using bankers as well as financial instruments, you can actually use leverage, buy the buildings, and it might end up generating a lot of um, positive cash flow for you. Now, obviously, there's a lot of risk, just like anything with investments. Remember, you get rewarded for your risk with doing these strategies. So you have to make sure that you're a very responsible and uh, responsible person with your finances, and I'm not telling you to go out and get in debt up to your eyeballs even with good assets, and that's why assets – that's why we're doing at the end of the show um, a review of how much debt is really reasonable. But I do want to talk to you about also what I've seen with quite a few of my clients is on rental property. A lot of my big real estate clients that have made their wealth through real estate got their start from buying that first piece of rental property or investment property through like a home equity line when interest rates were low. So, I mean, you have to think about these things is how can you enable yourself to become wealthier, and debt is one of those tools that you can pull out of that, that financial planning toolkit to help you do it. you just got to be smart and very um, dedicated to making sure you pay it back because, remember, once that credit's bad, if you, if you do have trouble paying back your debts and your credit goes bad, it hurts a lot of things, as we discussed in the previous podcast. Now, what do you need to do if you want to take advantage of this and make sure and turn some of this debt into assets? The first thing you probably need to do is go find a good banker. Um, you need to build a relationship with a bank, a credit union, or some other type of financial institution so you can have access to the funds. And I want to talk to you about the power of having a good banker. I once read a statement about using debt and bankers, and this is kind of a great thing to hear, is it says, Borrowing money from a banker is one of the few business examples where you come up with only approximately 10% of the money for the venture, and yet the bank allows you to have 100% control and 100% of the profits less their interest. If you think about that, how, even if you go to a family member, 
and want to ask them for a loan to help you buy something, don't they usually want to try to tell you how to run it? I mean, if you go to a friend, I know they're going to want to do the same thing. Any business venture out there, most people are going to want a business plan, which a banker's going to want too. But after they give you the okay, bankers pretty much leave you alone. They give you the check, and as long as you're paying your interest, you're done. And you have 100% control, and you get to keep 100% of that profit less their interest payment. Not a bad deal whatsoever. So I do think that debt doesn't get the respect it deserves sometimes on enabling people to build wealth. Um, just remember, I can't say this enough, remember debt is a, 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 a tool that you have to use responsibly, and it can actually hurt you if you're not wise with using it. So please know that there's risk like any other investment, but if you use wisely, debt can be a tremendous builder of your wealth. So the next question you're probably asking yourself, well, Brian, how much debt is okay then? A lot of you have told me that you listen to my show, plus you also listen to Dave Ramsey. And Dave Ramsey's one of those planners out there who does a great job. I actually enjoy listening to Dave's show as well. And Dave is one of those guys that it feels to be, to be completely financial responsible, you need to pay down your debt. And I think that's not a bad thing whatsoever, but I just wanted to tell you kind of some of his rules of thumb. He is, Dave has said that, that you shouldn't have more than 25% of your income going to debt payment. And I think that that is a good conservative goal, but I do think it is just that. It is a little conservative because if you get into, um, you know, rental investing, buying rental property or if you get into you know doing some of this uh, you know other investment ventures and you can make good use of the money I would be willing for you to push that number up to 35%. But there's a caveat to that. The biggest thing you've got to worry about out there is your retirement because you know the next topic we're going to talk about is social security. So I worry about people and their savings and their retirement. So I tell you you can do that 35% as long as you're truly funding 15 to 20% of your gross annual income to savings and retirement. And that's not after taxes. I want you to do 15 to 20% before taxes. So that means you make $100,000. I want you saving 15 to $20,000 a year for retirement. And that can be your 401k. That can be your Roth IRA. It can be any of those items. But then you can also have 35% of that income going to pay debt as well. So I hope that helps out. You know, remember that debt is extremely powerful, extremely powerful, but it must be used responsibly. I cannot reiterate that enough. Now let's move on. Remember I told you I was going to tell you about an article that was in Investment News. The title of that article was Bipartisan Group Unveils Plan to Save Social Security. I've got my own opinions about Social Security, and I've got a personal reason for it. First, let me give you some um, facts, and I'll go ahead and give you the topic for my editorial. Is I think the biggest pyramid scheme in history is Social Security. You're like, wow, that's harsh. I say that because what is a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme, whatever you want to call it? And hopefully you've heard of pyramid schemes. They're illegal, by the way. What that means is you always see these people that come around and say, hey, you give me $100. And then you go find, I'll put you on this, this pyramid, and then you go find three, four, five other people and get them to give you $100. And then they can go out and find people. And everybody keeps going out and finding additional people to recruit 
you know, to put $100. And everybody keeps making more and more money because every person gets a cut off of the previous person. So if you're at the top of the pyramid, you're making a lot of money. The problem and the reason they're always illegal is because eventually the chain doesn't go any further and the whole thing collapses and tumbles down and whoever that last person is has funded their money or right at the end of the pyramid and loses it all. They're left holding the bag, essentially. And I don't know if you remember, but there was some, I even had a neighbor come up to me, and, and one night he invited me over to his house, and he said, look at this great website. And I cannot remember the name of it, but it was some marketing website, supposedly, where you you paid them, I can't even remember, but you had a minimum of doing, I think it was like $16, I can't remember the minimum, but you could do up to like $1,500, and then you supposedly get paid by going and clicking five websites a day. It was the craziest thing I ever heard of. And he goes, I've got friends making two or $3,000 a month off of this. And I said, it's a scheme. I said, it's going to go under. He didn't. He was like, no, there's no way. My friends, I've seen the checks. And I was like, it's a, there's no way this is legal. There's no way they can make money. You always have to ask yourself, how is this company making profit? And sure enough, it was all over the Wall Street Journal that these sites got shut down. They were Ponzi and pyramid schemes. Well, Social Security is the exact same thing. I hope you realize that Social Security, there's not truly a trust fund up there in Washington. There's no money. Social Security is truly funded all by IOUs, meaning that my money that I generate today and all other workers who have Social Security collected on them is used to pay current retired individuals that are collecting Social Security. That's It's a pay-as-you-go system, meaning it's paying out benefits out of the money I just sent in last month from the company. There's also, let me give you some other statistics. In approximately 2017, Social Security will begin to spend more than it takes in. So right now it's okay because we got more workers than retirees on the money that's coming in. So we have more money coming in than it's going out, so everything seems fine. But in 2017, that changes. And then... Another thing that drives me crazy that would be completely illegal if we tried to do this on the private side is a 25-year-old man. If you have a 25-year-old and he just started doing Social Security, his rate of return when he finally gets to start pulling that money out is predicted to be a negative 0.82%. So you essentially go out to put money in your entire working life and go generate a negative rate of return. Doesn't that sound like something you want to go invest in? If I came to you and said, hey, I've got a great investment for you. Give me um, $300,000, and I'll promise you, when you retire, it'll be worth less than what you put in. You're like, man, that's a great thing. I can't wait to No, you'd be thrown in jail. It'd be a scheme. I'd be a criminal. You couldn't do it, but somehow the government can do it. And let me tell you, minorities, they receive the worst of it because not only, you know, just looking at life expectancies, they're getting the, the worst end of that. Because their life expectancies are longer. And you know with Social Security, once you pass away, your benefits disappear. I'm about to get into that with my own personal story here in a minute. But they also, you don't have the ability to pass on assets to your heirs. So this is probably a great time for you to tell you about my per- personal situation. I haven't really expressed that, I don't think, in other podcasts. But I actually lost my father back in the year 2000. Um, he had a, a battle uh, with a disease and, and unfortunately was lost. But... You know, it's okay, I've, I've made peace with that, but one of the things that troubles me is that I have his last Social Security statement, and he paid him well over $100,000 into the system. 
And my dad was 55 when he passed away. So he had not collected any benefits. Do you know what you get when you die before you collect Social Security? Anybody? $255. So if you can think about this, this is, and this, this all happened back in the time when there was all kind of scandals up in Washington where people were buying and renting rooms essentially for contributions to stay in the White House. And I just thought in my head, I was like, this is ridiculous that my father's put in over $100,000 of his savings while I was working. Could be worth probably 200, 300, 400, half a million dollars if this was invested properly. And they're going to take every dime of it and give us a $255 check and tell us that's it. And, you know, and it probably needs to, need to give you a little background on my family. I come from a family where my parents never made six figures, and that's both of them working. So they both made about the same money. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a salesman. Never made more than six figures in total if you combine their two salaries. So you can see they were probably making about the same amount of money, and I know because I was doing their taxes. So a lot of people say, yeah, but your mother will inherit his, his benefit. No. Now, if they make about the same amount of money, there is a cap on how much you can earn. So essentially his money evaporated. And that's the same thing that happens to minorities and other young people is if you pass away before you even start taking benefits, it's gone. It's like a big donation to the federal government. Thank you. And that's the part that I don't think anybody, especially us young people, don't understand. I wanted to give you um, kind of what they said they were going to do under this. There was a, a bipartisan group that got together to say how they were going to fix Social Security. Now, remember, we've known this has been a problem for quite some time. This is not something that just popped up two weeks ago or a month ago, and they said, hey, let's put together a bipartisan panel and see if we can fix this. No, this is something that's happened over time, and they just continue to defer it because nobody ever wants to touch Social Security because, let's face it, they're worried about getting reelected, and, you know, they know that the senior citizens are, are going to get concerned about this because irrationally, I will tell you. I'm so upset with AARP and the way they, they, they snub some of this stuff, but it is not the way you want to do things. But under this new plan, and this ain't going to happen, I'm just going to kind of bring you up to speed, but under this new plan that's been proposed, guaranteed benefits for typical workers will be reduced by 43%. The retirement age will be raised immediately, and the payroll tax cap would be raised to 90% of earnings. In addition, personal accounts equal to 3% of earnings would be mandated. You know, this is... You think about this. A few years ago, I remember they, they, they talked about changing things. You even heard President Bush talking about it. And it was, of course, shot down. But I remember the big thing was if you were over 55, there was going to be no changes to your benefits. Well, you can hear from this, they're already talking about doing immediate reductions in benefits. So you can see this is kind of like a cancer. You know, you catch it early enough, you can fix it without really causing any change to your lifestyle or really impacting your life whatsoever. But if you let a cancer or a tumor grow on you, it takes you. It eventually just ruins your whole quality of life. It can even take your life. And that's what I feel like Social Security is on our entire country because nobody's doing anything about it. The problem is getting bigger and bigger. The solution that is going to eventually have to come is going to be worse and worse because we're not taking the action to change it now. And we're just going to be left holding the bag. If you're under, if you're a Gen Xer, meaning if you're in your, you know, mid 30s, you know, if you're like me, or if you're those Gen Wires, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be taken advantage of. And there's even baby boomers that could be doing better if we did better, you know, if we change this around. So just, I never want to give you something without telling you what we can do 
to try to fix it. And, and I think what I wanted to give you guys was a website because a lot of a lot of young people, is, I should say everybody, a lot of people don't know who represents them up in Washington. So I, I wanted to help you out. So I got a website for you, and I'll put this link up where you can just go to this website up in the upper left-hand corner. You just type in your zip code. It'll tell you exactly who represents you in Washington, tell you their addresses, email addresses. You can contact them and let them know your concerns. And do some research. Don't trust me on this matter. Remember, I'm jaded because I've actually been burned by the system. Go do your own research, and I think you'll come to the same conclusion. But if you want to do something about it, go to vote-smart.org. Remember, that's a .org. It's vote-smart.org if you want to go out there and try to make a little bit of a difference. Like I said, I apologize. I didn't want to editorialize because I love this podcast. I'm just trying to make a difference. But there's sometimes when I read articles about Social Security, they just chat me a little bit. They rub me the wrong way. And I was like, it's crazy. I've got this platform. I ought to at least tell people what I truly think about some of these things so that they can go out and hopefully make a difference. And who knows, if maybe these politicians would finally start to respect and understand common sense, we might get some things done up there. And I'm not talking about either party. I think they're both screwing things up royally up there. But that... um that goes without saying. I think that's the synonym for being a politician. Um, so that's the big thing. Let's move on to something a little more positive. I want to talk about um, Shannon Foster's email. Shannon, subscriber, who sent me a great email on credit from our previous podcast. She goes, Brian, hi, I listened to your podcast about credit. I actually know a, a lot about credit, partly learned by experience and partly by research. I thought I would add a couple of interesting pieces of information regarding cards, credit, and etc. It says, for those who have absolutely have to use the cash advance feature, you can actually beat the fees by setting up a PayPal account, PayPal account to deposit money into your own checking account. It's easy and free through PayPal.com. Once the account is verified, you can actually make a deposit from your credit card to your PayPal account, just like you would to other accounts, if you were to win an eBay auction and such, the money goes directly into your checking account, less a 2 to 3% fee PayPal takes. So that is something that would trouble me is that they're taking 2 to 3%, but that's probably cheaper than the cash advance fees. I'm not, you know, I would never, I'm not a big fan of anybody taking cash advances, but I guess if this was a dire situation, I can understand. So that's why I'm, I think these are good comments. Um, but it's seen by the credit card companies as a purchase, not a cash advance is therefore much cheaper in interest as well as fees. And most people don't realize that, but if you do take cash advances, there's a totally different interest rate than your normal interest rate on your credit card. So pay attention to that. I also got, Shannon was picking on me because um, she said I didn't tell you to not close old credit card accounts. And that's a great point. I didn't mention that. In my, I don't think I really gave that enough stress in the last podcast, is that if you do have credit card accounts that are quite old, but maybe you're not using those credit cards anymore because they don't have the rewards that some of your other credit cards have, don't close them because they're actually helping you because they extend your credit history. If you think about it, if you're, if you're you know, in your 30s, 40s, and you've had a credit card in your name for 20 years, and even though you're not using it, you all of a sudden decide to close it up, and your next card wasn't open maybe for six years later, you just cut six years off of your credit history, and that's one of the main driving forces of your credit score. So be careful with that and keep those old accounts open. It's not really hurting you that bad to have that outstanding debt out there. So just have well, have that, that debt capability. You don't really have the debt. You just have access to the debt. So keep those old accounts open. 
Um, she also has some other tips on her. It says, many people think any credit inquiry, including their own, counts against them. If you request your own credit report and your current creditors request data, it is not counted as an inquiry, so it does not hurt your credit score. Lastly, if you get your credit reports from each of the three credit bureaus directly, you can dispute items online. A nice trick that has worked for me when nothing else has is to always use the term not mine when disputing any credit issues. Now, obviously, you want to make sure that that really does pertain. Shannon, I'm going to edit this a little bit. You know, we can't lie about things, so just know. But she says, unlike other reasons, the not mine reason forces your creditors to prove the debt within 30 days of your notice to the Bureau since the rampant rise in identity theft, or it gets removed from the report. This has helped me remove an erroneous collection account with nothing else, when nothing else worked. So I thought that was a great tip. Also, she talked about to that end regarding credit collection agencies. On a side note, something I found incredibly helpful is if you are sent a collection letter from an agency, they cannot accept the debt if you write a letter of dispute, and she put that in, in quotes, letter of dispute to them, and must copy the original creditor within 30 days of the receipt. The collection agency must turn it back over to the creditor. I learned this from an honest collection agency when moving, a moving company tried to collect for work never done for me. They even tried a second company. I wrote them a similar letter and a copy of the original. I was never contacted again. So, Shannon, great, great information. I truly appreciate you throwing out that advice to us, and hopefully there's going to be some subscribers out there that are getting their financial chaos in order, and they can use that to help them out. Remember, the next show is going to be a special show. We're going to focus on subscriber emails as well as from newspaper magazines and articles that I'm just going to keep you up with the, the you know most current events in the financial world. But other than that, you guys have been great to me. We've broken a 1,000 subscribers. It's all because of you guys. If you could continue to please refer people to me on iTunes as well as going to money-guide.com, G-U-Y, um, it will continue to help us grow, and it means the world to me. Until next time, I want to wish you much blessings with your wealth, health, future, as well as your family and friends. Thanks so much. 